0: We need our building finished, obviously. And so if you've got a couple million dollars lying around, that'd be great. But, but if not, until then, um, we do have three services. This was the, the most full. First, if 815, there's plenty of room in that one. Third service, not so much, uh, but there is a little bit more room in third service. But golly, this is just, it's great to see all of you. Well, most of you have had someone tell you at some point in your life To act your age. A parent, uh, a teacher, maybe even a friend. Most memorable for me was on my 30th birthday. We had a bunch of friends over for a little party, and one of the girls in our singles group, that means she professed to be a Christian, gave me a birthday card which read on the cover, It's your birthday, so act your age. I opened it up, and the inside read, Lie underground and remain very still. <laughs> I was 30. When someone tells you to act your age, they might be telling you to grow up, which it is possible I deserve that card. Or, or, or perhaps they're, they're, they're telling you to act like who you are. Don't, ha- don't act like who you aren't. You're not a child anymore, so don't act like one, act your age. Maybe your parents said something like this to you as you were leaving the house. Remember, you're a Johnson. Remember who you are. Act like it. We arrive this morning at what most consider to be the theme of the book of Philippians. In these verses, Paul tells the Philippians and frankly us to, to act like who we are. Make sure that your conduct is consistent With your new life in Christ, to this point in the letter, Paul has greeted them in verses one and two. He offered a prayer of thanksgiving in verses uh, three to eleven. He he, he told us uh, then about his own circumstances and his imprisonment for the sake of the uh, uh, for the cause of Christ in verses twelve to sixteen. He ended that very long paragraph with what some have called a soliloquy. As he mentioned the possibility of death in verse 20, he ruminated on that prospect and gave us a very great passage. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. I'm hard pressed from both direction. Having a desire to to depart and, and be with Christ for that is very much better. What a great view of death that Paul gave us. At least what, what what awaits beyond death. You see, Christ is not the cancellation prize that we get for dying. He's everything. Meaning we actually long to depart and be with him. Well, I, I guess that's depending on how you fill in the blank. For me to live is, well, what? For me to live is, My job, for me to live is my career, my my education, my hobbies, uh, my friends, maybe even my family. If that's true, then when you die, you lose. For me to live is Christ. The dying is gain because when we die, we get Christ. Paul said, while I desire to Depart. I, I know that I will remain and continue on with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So in the meantime, while I'm still kind of here in prison, I have some instructions for you. And he turns his attention from his own circumstances to some commands about what he expects as, as they and, and, and as we await death, as we long to depart and be with Christ, so read the text with me, Philippians 1, theme of the book, verses 27 to 30. While you're waiting for me, only, did I, this one thing, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same thing that you saw in me and that you now hear to be in me. Theme of the book. As you Philippians await my arrival, as we at ABF await the return of Christ, here it is, one thing. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Act like who you really are. Then he goes on to tell us how. It actually governs the rest of the book. You see, Epaphroditus has brought him a a report. He's aware of some divisions within the church as well as some opposition without. So he calls them to to unity and and humility and suffering. Now listen, if we tell people what many in the church today um, tell people, especially in our culture... We tell people, follow Jesus, and you'll be healthy and wealthy. You get everything in your heart, everything you always wanted, and they don't get that. Guess what happens? They leave. No wonder it's a big lie. And it's not in the Bible. But if we tell them, when you get Christ, you get suffering, they at least know what they're signing up for. You see, the hinge pin of this whole letter is the example of Christ himself and that great hymn of the faith in chapter 2. had this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself, and he suffered, and he died. And he might be calling you to the same thing. This passage is actually one very long convoluted sentence. One sentence, everything that I just read in, in the Greek, all flowing from that very first command. I'm going to give the outline as we try to make our way through it to make some sense of it. He's going to give the, the command of, of worthy conduct that comes from standing firm, striving together and, and not being alarmed. And then he's going, to, he's going to give us the grace for worthy conduct, which is actually a bit shocking Let's look at the very closely at the command in verse 27 because there's, a, there's an important nuance that is often missed in our English translations. In fact, it's, it's really under-translated. Paul says only, I, I get this one thing for you, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the word conduct yourselves, actually one word in the Greek, conduct yourselves, is, is actually a very intentional word That Paul chooses that was specific to the Philippians. See, we remember that Philippi was a Roman colony. People who lived there were Roman citizens. They were governed by Roman law. They participated in the imperial cult. That is, they saw the emperor as a god. They even called him Lord. At this time, they called him Lord Nero. Uh, th- these inhabitants of this Roman colony, Philippi, were very proud of their Roman citizenship. They wore it as a badge. They wore Roman clothing. They spoke Latin. In, in short, they acted like Romans. That's who they were, and everybody knew it. So Paul chooses this very unique word. Only, only here in all of his writings, the word is actually uh, palatoumai, from which we get our word palas or city, it comes from that root word, uh, it's the word from which we get our word politics. The word literally means to discharge your duties as citizens. Write that down. To discharge your duties as citizens. In other words, you are citizens, I want you to act like it. So it's not just conduct yourselves, but Conduct yourselves as citizens. These Philippians, including these new believers, were proud of their Roman citizenship, and they acted like it. Again, dressed like Romans, talked like Romans, obeyed like Romans. Paul says, I want you to act like citizens of another polis. Uh, Conduct yourselves in a manner appropriate of another city. In chapter 3, he'll say... For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly, away, uh, we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and there it is again. We eagerly wait for Jesus. We're longing either to die and be with Jesus or for him to come back and get us. Either way, we get Jesus. Because our citizenship is not here. It's in another place. We are citizens of heaven, made so by the gospel. So Paul says, People, I want you to act like it, live like it, dress like it, talk like it, obey like it, with lives worthy of the gospel as its citizens. Conduct yourselves as citizens of a heavenly colony, the church which will then be a brilliant witness in, the li- in, in, in lives, uh, other lives in, in Philippi, that earthly colony. I want you to understand, they were members of a colony within a colony. And he says, I want you to live lives worthy of that. I don't, I don't hardly know any other nation that's more proud of its citizenship than the United States. And we have lots of people in our country who profess to be Christians. Depending on who you read, some 70 to 80% call themselves Christians. Is it your experience that maybe seven or eight out of 10 people uh, li- live like Christians? Were- worthy of the gospel, consistent with being a follower of Christ? Paul tells us here I want you to live lives as citizens of another place. Act like who you are, with lives consistent with the gospel that you profess. Too many people today see the gospel as a deliverance from the consequences of sin, but they don't see it as deliverance from slavery to sin. They don't see it as deliverance from the conduct of sin. Paul says live lives. Not as citizens of the world, but as citizens of heaven. And this citizen, I want you to know, was purchased at a very high price. The blood of Jesus Christ. So, what does a life worthy of the gospel look like? Paul goes on to tell us. Whether I come to see you, that is, if I'm released as expected and come, or even if I'm not released... I have a plan to send Timothy to you. He tells us that in the next chapter. Uh, And when Timothy comes back and brings a report, I want to hear some very specific things about you. Now, this isn't meant to be a threat. He actually says, I hope to be encouraged by what Timothy um, says. I want you to understand, though, that Paul is making the Philippians accountable to him for their behavior. Get this. We are always accountable to someone for our behavior. I've said this before, kids cannot wait to grow up because then they think they'll be free. And adults laugh because they're not we're not free. We are always accountable to someone. We're accountable to our bosses and to our spouses and and, and to the governing authorities, to the police. And if you are Christians, you are accountable to your church leaders. And church leaders want to hear reports that people in the church are acting like who they are in the community. that's, That's one thing that we're going to talk about a week from tonight. I want us to impact this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen up. We have more than a thousand people who call Alliance their church. I want to hear reports that the people of alliance bible fellowship that we are living lives worthy of the gospel. I want our gospel lives to impact people. It is time. It is time that we intentionally develop an outward focus. And as we do, they may not like us because our message will include the truth that people are sinners just like us, for whom Christ died, be that as it may, I want us to be salt and light in this community, living lives worthy of the gospel, full of good fruit. When I hear of you, when I hear of us, they may not like us, but they will not be able to speak against the things that we do. So what does Paul mean by living as citizens worthy of the gospel? He tells us, First, that when I hear of you, I hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Lives worthy of the gospel are lives that firmly stand. They remain firmly committed. Paul says, I want you to persevere in your commitment to the faith. I want you to persevere, stand firm. You see, later in this very sentence, remember it's just one sentence, he's going to talk about some, some opposition that they're facing. He says, I want... I want to hear that you're continuing to stand in one spirit. This opposition against you is meant to divide you and to destroy you. Stand firm. You can allow this outside pressure, these external pressure to divide you, or you you can cause it to unite you. Christians must not flee. They must not uh, back down. They must not compromise the truth of the gospel. They must not give in. Listen, this is odd for us. They must not divide. They must not crack under the pressure. They must stand firm. Uh, Now, uh, a question that we have to ask at this this point is, what is this one spirit? Uh, Specifically, um, should spirit be capitalized? As many of you know, New Testament Greek did not include capitalization, and we have to allow the context to determine uh, whether this should be a spirit of unity, little s, or capital S, the Holy Spirit. I'm fairly confident that most of your translations here have it in small spirit, which speaks of a spirit of unity, and that's certainly possible, okay? That's, That's possible. But all of my commentaries make a very strong case that it should be capital spirit. And I frankly think they're right. Lots of reasons they give. Strongest arguments are, uh, in chapter 4, Paul's going to use the same phrase, and he says, stand firm in the Lord. And then there's two other times that he uses this exact phrase in his writings. Stand firm in one spirit. And the context makes very clear that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So he says, I think... I want to hear from you that you are standing firm in the gospel, united in one Holy Spirit. Because listen, the ability and power to stand firm will not come from me giving you a pep talk this morning. It's not that you're going to be able to go out of here and muster this up. It's not going to come from self-reliance. It's going to come from one place. It's going to come from the Spirit of God. He is reminding us that we are unable to do anything any of this without the indwelling presence and filling of the Holy Spirit. The only way that we can impact this community with the gospel of Christ and withstand the inevitable opposition that will come is if we stand firm, united under one Holy Spirit. Second, when I hear of you, I want to hear that with one mind, One soul, literally, you are striving together for the faith of the gospel. This idea of striving together is a military term. And we're going to kind of get this idea uh, 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 that we're an army. Military term that speaks of soldiers standing side by side to face the enemy. So we are united under the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, our commander, as one person, side by side, facing the enemy, fighting together for the advance of the progress of the gospel. This is what we're supposed to be about. You see, later, he's going to call out two women by name who, who were not standing side by side. They were standing face to face fighting each other. And in chapter 4 where he mentions them, it's very interesting. Paul says, these women have shared my struggle. And he uses the exact same word. These women used to stand side by side with me. But now they're not. They're fighting. They're standing face to face and fighting each other. Folks, we must not fight each other. Here's a question. Who fights better than Christians. If we put half the energy into reaching this community as we do fighting each other. Paul says, don't fight each other. Stand side by side because we fight a common enemy. For the faith of the gospel. That's very unusual wording. This faith uh, uh, of the gospel is faith in the gospel or faith derived by the gospel. It's all the same. We are united under the power of the Spirit for that which... And that which we strive for is not our own rights. We're really big about that in this culture, fighting for my rights. We don't fight for our protection. We don't even necessarily fight for our church or our denomination. We don't even necessarily fight for morality. I said necessarily. Our common goal is the faith Of the gospel. We want to see Christ exalted through the good news of his death, burial, and resurrection. This is what we fight with. This is what we fight for. Which will bring again opposition. This is the third thing that Paul wants to hear that we are in no way alarmed by our opponents. Alarmed, another one of those very peculiar words that he uses that speaks of warfare. It was actually used to speak of a startled, stampeding herd of horses on a battlefield. So what he says is, I don't want want you to be startled so that you become this mass of uncontrolled, stampeding people in the midst of battle. Don't be alarmed. Don't be intimidated in any way by your opponents, by those who would oppose you. Because they will. Who are these opponents that Paul is talking about uh, in Philippi? In Philippi, in verse 30, he speaks of the Philippians experiencing the same opposition they saw him experience and that they heard that he was currently facing. So most agree, these are probably Roman authorities in Philippi who opposed the message of the gospel. Just like they opposed Paul when he first preached the gospel and planted the church 10 years ago. They beat him and, and, and Silas, threw him in jail overnight. Just like the Roman authorities were currently doing uh, by having Paul in prison. Now I want you to stop and think about that with just, for just a moment. Those of you that remember history, I know that's a bad word. This was the very powerful Roman Empire. Paul was being guarded by the elite Praetorian Guard. This was an esteemed Roman colony of, of retired soldiers. And Paul says, don't be alarmed by the most powerful people on the planet who oppose you. Who cares if political, academic, supervisory, legal authorities oppose you? You are right. Stand firm. Even if they put you in jail. Even if they threaten to kill you. That's so foreign to us. Now, now why would these Roman authorities so vehemently and violently oppose the message of the gospel? Remember what I said earlier. First, the ancient Near East was fully polytheistic. They worshipped many gods, and as a Roman colony included in their plethora of gods, perhaps at the very top of the list was the um, of which they were very proud was. Lord Emperor, Lord Nero. And along comes Christianity, which says, nope, there are not many gods. There's only one God who expresses himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And there's only one Lord, not Lord Nero. His name is Jesus. That would seem religiously intolerant. Doesn't that sound uh, familiar? And we start giving in because we don't want to be intolerant. Really? It it, it sounds politically treasonous. We're going to talk about political treason in just a few minutes. It's going to sound like insurrection. It's going to sound like civil disobedience. So they reacted violently, beating, arresting, imprisoning, and eventually killing followers of Jesus. It's interesting to note that these early people called Christians, atheists, because they did not believe in the gods. They believed in only one God. And so they violently opposed them, much like uh, foreign to us, but much like they do around the world today in places like Iran and and much of the Middle East and and in Sudan and, and in China and the list goes on and on. Paul says, I do not want you to be alarmed by that because their opposition is a sign of destruction for them but of salvation for you. But what, what, that's weird. What does that mean? As I said, this is a very difficult, convoluted sentence. At first glance, it, it looks like, it seems like that their opposition is, is, is a sign to them of their own destruction and a confirmation to us of our salvation. And we remember that the word salvation uh, speaks of um, deliverance by vindication. And so as they oppose you, it's a sign to them that they're going to get it but it's a sign to us that we will um, ultimately be saved. I want you to understand this has nothing to do with deliverance from violence or persecution or martyrdom. N- nothing to do with that. While we are opposed, persecuted, and perhaps even killed is not the issue. The issue is we will ultimately be saved. I, that sounds very reasonable. Reasonable. However, you need to know that words are supplied in this very difficult sentence, which aren't in the Greek, to come up with that particular translation and interpretation. I want to suggest that it would be strange for Paul to say, listen, their opposition, your standing firm, is only a sign to them of their pending destruction. Your faith is a sign to them of their pending destruction. You have to say, really, How? How is it a sign to them of their own destruction? So, 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 so when they oppose us and, and we stand firm, they're going to go, oh, I get it now. That's a sign that we're going to get it. That's odd. It's more likely, and I frankly think it fits the context, and you're maybe not going to like this, that what Paul is saying is their opposition of our faith and our standing firm is a sure sign to them of Our destruction. Mm -hmm. You guys keep believing. You guys keep proclaiming this gospel. That is a sign that we're going to keep on opposing you and that we're going to persecute you and we might even eventually kill you. But when they do, I want you to know that it is also a sign to us that we will ultimately be saved. I want you to understand that I think and many think that this destruction and salvation are both ours. Our faith is a sign to them of our destruction, but our faith is also a sign to us of our salvation. So every time they oppose us, persecute us, and kill us because they think that we deserve it, we deserve this destruction, we know that we're being saved. See, one author summarizes it this way. In no way let your adversary strike terror in you. For although they see your loyalty to the truth as inevitably leading to your persecution and death, your destruction, you see it as leading through persecution to the salvation of your souls. Paul is actually calling us to the same attitude that he had back in verses 19 and 20. He's actually calling us to follow the example of Christ that he's going to bring up in chapter 2. Back in verses 19 to 20, he says, I know all of this will turn out for my deliverance, my salvation. Christ I know will be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by my death. Bring it on. My destruction is a sign to them, a sign to me of salvation. You see, the cross which was Christ's destruction, is foolishness to them, but it's salvation to us. And so we'll be vindicated. I want you to understand that there is no promise of temporal deliverance in this passage. From verses 19 and following. There is no promise that if you'll just do, what, do what's right, you'll get out of trouble. In fact, the opposite is promised. Paul is not saying if you will just live lives worthy of the gospel, very soon in this life, God will deliver you and he will take care of your enemies and you can live happily ever after. I know that's what many churches teach today. It's not in the Bible. It's quite the opposite. We'll reach to a second point. The grace for worthy conduct in verses 29 to 30. Paul says something here which I believe is largely ignored by American Christianity. American Christianity is fond of saying God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. If you'll just have enough faith, you can live a trouble-free life. Again, that is not what the Bible teaches. Look at verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake. This truth is why early Christians ran to martyrdom. Because they saw it as a gift from God. And they saw suffering for Christ as something to be gained. I, I, I've, I've not, that's, that's not what I've, I, I, I know. And it infuriates me that they teach you heresy. You see, the first thing you have to know that, again, that you may not like is the word granted is the word graced. You have been graciously, freely given. You have been freely given the grace, the opportunity, the privilege, and the ability to believe in Him. I like that. Yeah, it's good for me. I like that. It's not all. You have been given the grace to suffer for His sake. Suffering on behalf of Christ is just as much a grace as believing in Christ. Which means you have not only the grace necessary to suffer for Him, but the expectation to suffer for Him. You see, in the next chapter, Paul will tell us to follow the example of Christ. You know, the one who emptied himself, humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. It's been graciously given to you the privilege of, to believe in Him and to suffer for Him. And I want you to understand, notice, suffering is not the everyday headaches and heartaches that everyone faces. It is suffering for Christ's sake because a public identification with Christ and His gospel will result in suffering. Like, yet, another Iranian pastor named Saeed Abedini, who who tomorrow, Monday, will face a notoriously difficult judge in Iran. This judge is known as the Hanging Judge. And Pastor Saeed will very possibly be sentenced to death because of his commitment to Jesus Christ. Now listen, the charge against him is, ready, compromising national security. That sounds familiar. The truth is he was arrested for starting a home church movement in Iran. And he will very likely be sentenced to death tomorrow. That's out of God's will. Oh, really? Consider what Paul told Timothy. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, you need to know that Paul wrote that during his last imprisonment, not this one. Most scholars believe that Paul was released from this particular imprisonment in Philippians. He likely traveled west to Spain where he preached the gospel. When he came back, the persecution against the church by the Roman Empire, the the legal authorities, um, was in full force. He was arrested as a leader uh, of the church, placed this time not in house arrest like uh, uh, when he wrote Philippians, but he was placed in the Mamertine prison in Rome from which he would not be released. In fact, that imprisonment would result in his beheading. And Paul knew that. Later in 2 Timothy, in this last letter that he wrote, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Remember when he wrote Philippians, he says, Even if I am being poured out, now he says it's come. I, I am being poured out. The time of my departure is, has come. I get to go be with Christ. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Paul faced certain death when he wrote 2 Timothy, and he told him, remember Timothy who scribed Philippians, not only, Timothy, has it been granted to you to suffer for Christ's sake, but everyone, everyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, will be. Everyone. So what then is the problem with us? I have two possibilities. I do believe that here in the U.S. we have lived in somewhat of a bubble. A formerly Christian nation that God used to spread the gospel to much of the world. And I believe that we have enjoyed a measure of God's protection. But we are no longer a Christian nation. Read the news. And and, and those who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I believe it's coming. Which leads to the second possibility. Perhaps many of us are not being persecuted because we are not living godly lives. We we look too much like Romans and not like citizens of another country. Here's the truth. When you live a godly life, A life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, your life will expose the darkness around you. That darkness will either respond and come into the light or they will seek to extinguish your light. Darkness does not like light. So, consider these words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, blessed are you, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil Against you because of me. This is for Christ's sake. Rejoice and be glad. That's, that's what Paul's doing. He's just doing what Jesus said. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Henceforth, there is laid up for me in heaven, crown of righteousness, not only for me, but also all those who love his appearing, who long for his appearing. You'll get it too. Well, if for to me to live is Christ. John chapter 5 or 15. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because your citizenship isn't here, it's it's in heaven. I chose you out of the world because this world hates you. Because if this world hates you, remember the word I said to you. The slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Here's the truth as we close. We are citizens, brothers and sisters. We are citizens of another country, a heavenly one. In the meantime, we're just living here for a little while. We'll be persecuted. And our job is to stand side by side. And to take as many of them as we can. Do we believe the gospel? Then let's live lives worthy of the gospel. And suffer for Christ's sake. Let's stand for prayer. Father, I know this uh, sermon, this truth, is, doesn't make the top ten hits of American Christianity uh, because we've lived in relative ease and comfort and, and even luxury. And uh, we, can, we can go along and say I'm a Christian because eight out of ten will say I am too. And yet you're calling us to live lives differently, to act like who we are which will include living differently and speaking differently the claims of Christ. And this, I believe, is what you are calling us to be and to do. So, united under one spirit, striving together side by side, we will fight to advance the faith of the gospel. And we will not be alarmed, will not be intimidated by our opponents because we know that ultimate salvation is coming. Would you allow us? I'm I'm, going to pray. Would you allow us the grace not only to believe but to suffer for his sake? And I want to pray right now for Pastor Saeed, who tomorrow, uh, just a few hours, will face trial in Iran. I pray, yes, for his deliverance through economic pressure and international pressure, but I pray first that whether by life or by death, Christ will be exalted in his body. In Jesus' name, amen mm mm-hmm.